Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. Today's guest developed a love for the ocean from his hometown in Port Stephens on the north coast of New South Wales, Australia. In 1998, he studied fisheries management at the Australian Maritime College and finished with a PhD from the University of Tasmania with a focus on the link between larval fish and the Eastern Australian currents. Since 2014, he has been on the front line of the dive fisheries in Tasmania, working on a plan to manage the spread of sea urchins. Please welcome to the show, Dr. John Keen. Did I get your last name right? Yeah, it's Keen. Keen. Oh, at least I'm consistent. <laughs> first question, do you remember your first dive? I do. It was very cold. I did my first dive in my course in, in Tasmania, and it just happened to be the middle of winter. Um, I think the water was about eight degrees in the River Tamar, north of Launceston. Uh, we low visit. So it's really, when you think of diving, really jumping in the more difficult end of the spectrum. Cold, low vis. But yeah, I continued. Oh, beautiful. And what was your most memorable underwater experience? Most memorable underwater experience is definitely uh, diving in Fiji with tiger sharks or great diversity of sharks. But the four and a half metre tiger shark, which come within 30 centimetres of me, I could look it straight in the eye. It was definitely memorable, something I'll never forget. Oh, how was your wetsuit when you got out? Yeah, I'm glad it was on a shark dive and I was expecting and hoping to see one. Otherwise, it had to be just out of the blue and random. It could have been a different story. Yeah. Oh, that sounds amazing. I'll have to get over there and do it myself. When you looked into its eye, did you have a connection with it? Like, Yeah, it was, it was just like a big puppy dog. It looked just so friendly and casual and it was just really inquisitive. It was just swimming very, very gently just past looking at all the divers there one by one. Beautiful. I love that story. Can you explain the issues relating to sea urchins in Tasmania. So we're talking about one species of sea urchin here. There's there's lots of species, but we're talking about the long spine sea urchin or Centrostephanus uh, rogersi, which is also commonly known as a, the black sea urchin or sometimes a purple sea urchin. So it's quite a large sea urchin. You know, many divers would see this one as a, the dominant one on, on our reefs, which gets up to about 140 million test diameter. Then you've got the spines on top of that. So it's like a small basketball. Individual urchins aren't a problem. It's only when they form large numbers and they become overabundant. They can get in there, you know, tens of thousands or even millions. And that's when they become a problem. The issue is that they just eat everything. So they eat all the kelps, all the seaweeds. They eat the the sessile invertebrates, and they leave nothing behind except the bare rock when they become overabundant. And that is the issue, is when we get these bare rock patches, which are known as sea urchin barrens, and they can extend for kilometres uh, in some areas from southern New South Wales, eastern Victoria and Tasmania. I was down the south coast at Borley Point and Batemans Bay on, in New South Wales, and I was just amazed. There was not one fish around. There was just sea urchins everywhere. It's the first time I've actually ever seen anything like that. So as the barrens get bigger, you lose more and more life. So a small barren patch or an individual urchin is not a problem. It's these really big barren patches, and we've seen them, seeing them here forming in Tasmania mania and you know they're more prevalent in in eastern victoria and new south wales and you know it's affecting commercial fisheries recreational fisheries they're invading our recreational dive sites quite negative impact on the environment and our lives really what numbers would you say they are per hectare and for our northern hemisphere listeners it's about 2.2 acres per hectare in tasmania off our east coast there's over 2,000 of these per hectare 
Um, but they can get quite more than that. I guess when we put that in the context of other pests, uh, like the crown of thorns, we're looking at 15 per hectare. But the sea urchins are, you know, in their thousands per hectare. And that's when they really cause an issue. Wow. We hear a lot of publicity about the crown of thorns up in the Barrier Reef, but we don't hear a lot of publicity about this, do we? No, we don't. I guess, you know, the Great Barrier Reef, that big tourist icon to our north, kind of gets all the media attention. But the Great Southern Reef extends from, you know, northern New South Wales all the way around across southern Tasmania, across to Western Australia. And it's where, you know, most of the population live and it actually sustains most of our you know, more important commercial and recreational species. So, you know, we are quite dependent on on this reef for, for our way of life. Wow. How many would one sea urchin breed? In the thousands, tens of thousands. They spawn, they're broadcast spawners, they spawn their eggs up into the water column um, and they're very, very small and they fertilise and they live for three months. And when they breed that, they larvae just float around in the, in the water column, drifting with the ocean currents. And that's how they've managed to spread from New South Wales into Victoria and Tasmania because of that three-month larval phase. Uh, drifting down on the ocean current. And how fast do they move? The urchins themselves, the adults, yeah, they don't really move that much at all, surprisingly. So they just, the adults just sit there, they find their little home and they don't really move much. An uh, adult one will move about four metres in a night and will go out in a big circle and come back to its little home. It sounds like a night at the pub, doesn't it? Just go around and circles <laughs> and then yeah, stumble around. Come back home. Yep. And do they have any natural predators? They've got quite a fair few predators, Um from your fish species through to your lobsters and crabs. The ones well known are your big blue groper, your gropers predate on them, and some of the other rat species, and also your rock lobsters, your eastern rock lobster and, and in Tassie, the southern rock lobster. When urchins are small, everything large starts off small. They have lots of predators when they're small, but as they get larger... And they've got those big spines, they start to become less palatable, I guess, for, for larger predators. It becomes difficult. If you're trying to, if you're a small fish, you can't eat a big sea urchin. So, so as they get larger, there's less predators. So they become safe and there's a size refuge there. Can you tell our listeners more about the Great Southern Reef? The Great Southern Reef is, is a kelp dominated reef. Kelp dominated reefs are some of the most diverse uh, ecosystems are on the planet. There's thousands of different types of species of kelps and seaweeds. A lot of people kind of, you know, who don't associate themselves with the ocean to see kelp and seaweed as may, maybe only in a, a couple of different species. But there's thousands, and, and a lot of these are unique and endemic to, you know, Australia. They provide a lot of the fertility and life that a lot of our organisms then support. Is it all right to take the sea urchins off and feed the groper, or is that a bit of a no-no? Generally, feeding wild animals is, is generally considered a, considered a no-no, but, you know, you're not going to hurt the sea urchin population when they're in the hundreds of millions, That that's for sure. Us humans, we eat sea urchins don't we some cultures do yeah sea urchins are eaten globally all through asia particularly japan but also through the mediterranean italy the u.s mexico and other parts of south america now i've only tasted them once what do you reckon they taste like at their best they're sensational they're really sweet buttery umami flavor but the flavor of sea urchin varies seasonally and it varies depending on the habitat they come from so if you just went and plucked a random one out of the ocean without knowing you know you could potentially get a sea urchin that was very strong 
strong in flavor, very bitter in flavor, and it would turn you know you off eating them ever again. But if you get a good one that's harvested by a good diver at the right time of year, they are simply amazing, and it's just something you you know you'd be craving more of. Oh wow! How many do you think are in the Tasmanian area that? need to be managed. So in Tasmania, this sea urchin never existed. Um, it come down on the East Australian current. The first one was uh, seen in 1978 off the northeastern town of St Helens. And the numbers grew and grew. And now our last estimates show there's over 20 million. Wow. In New South Wales, have they been taking over more area as well in the last few decades? The urchin's native to New South Wales, so there's always been there and there's probably some always some level of barren have been there. And numbers have been growing in New South Wales, but only slowly, about 2% per decade, according to the science, and that's only in, in recent times. But we really don't know what the baseline was, what it was like, uh, you know, 100, 150 years ago before we started, you know, overfishing some of their key predators. Uh, so the blue groper uh, in the 1950s was really overfished, largely through spearfishing. I think the numbers got down to less than 10%. The their virgin biomass are so really low numbers. Yeah, rock lobsters as well were, you could see signs of depletion in the World War One, World War Two eras. We don't have a real great grasp of what the baseline and how many urchins were there in a natural state. Uh, in New South Wales, but yeah, numbers are, are growing. So people can help by harvesting sea urchins to their legal requirements. I know here in New South Wales, I think it's about 20 per person per day. It's not a huge number to harvest. Would that help control the situation? Yeah, well, every, everyone helps. I think in general, in seafood, we need to eat a more balanced array of seafood. So, you know, not just eat all the one species because it's got a great reputation eating a diverse array of seafoods and that includes sea urchins as i said if you get them at the right time of the year they can taste absolutely sensational what would be the right time of year the sea urchins start to come good after christmas these long spine sea urchins so from christmas onwards to june with peaking about from march april may through that period they get them their sweetest flavors fantastic will be on christmas holidays you'll start to see start to come onto the market as well over the next few months coming into december january what sort of tonnage comes out of the Tasmanian area. So we've got the biggest sea urchin fishery in Australia and there's 500 tonnes of being harvested. So that's about 1.3 million sea urchins per year. Wow. And, you know, you put that in the context that this urchin never used to existed and now it's our third largest fishery harvesting one over a million sea urchins a year. It's quite phenomenal that, you know, how quickly ecosystems have changed. As you were saying earlier, there's 20 million estimated to be out there. Yeah, and that number's recruitment is a little bit unknown at this stage and it's probably growing exponentially so that's 20 million we can see there's a lot of you know the small ones are cryptic and cracks and crevices that we can't count so there's a lot of a lot of sea urchins coming through which are you know already in the system that we can't count and when did the sea urchin fishery start it started in tasmania in 2009 and it's yeah grown since then it was only small for the first decade and i say in the last five years that it's picked up but in new south wales there's you know been sea urchin fisheries back to the 1970s. Oh, wow. Yes, there's been sea urchin fisheries on, on the mainland 
um, for this species, the long-spine sea urchin, um, you know, dating back to the 1970s. And it's gone up and down throughout the years. You know, there's potential there for it to grow substantially given the amount of sea urchins on our reefs. Yeah, I think I'll be putting them on my diet. Are there different flavours from sea urchins at different depths? You do get some different flavours and quality of sea urchins. Very somewhat between depths, definitely, but it's got to do with the, the more the density of sea urchin than in the sea urchin barrens. So once the barrens form, which is, you know, kind of in those, you know, mid-depths, 10 metres and deeper, they eat themselves out of house and home. So they eat all the kelp for around them. And in the middle of the barren, the row quality isn't great. It's small and bitter, so you wouldn't want to get one from the middle of those big, large barrens. If you're going to pick one to eat, get it from the, that shallower area on the fringing where it's still eating some nice kelp, and it'll help protect that kelp and also be better on your palate. Oh, fantastic. Oh, I really appreciate that tip. How do you cook them? Well, you don't have to cook them. You can just eat the sea urchin row raw on a nice piece of sushi. You can have a little piece of roe on an oyster, give that real umami flavour hit. You can cook them. Um, and they are great in seafood dishes as well. The last one I cooked, I cooked a sea urchin pasta. It's a prawn and sea urchin um, just last week with some fresh pasta and just mix the sea urchin through the pasta right at the very end. So it gives that uh, rich, creamy, umami flavour. And that, Yeah, that is absolutely sensational. Oh, I'm getting hungry now. Do we export them to other countries? We do. We export them. There is a healthy market domestically, but they also get exported predominantly through Southeast Asia, through Korea, Singapore. Hong Kong, Taiwan. There's also some markets being developed into the Middle East and also some getting exported to the US as well. So yeah, there's quite quite a big export market into a diverse array of countries. And I think if we want to use the fishery as a help control the, you know, overabundant the expansion of the sea urchin population, developing these these international markets further is critical for that. How can we as citizen scientists help you in growing the demand for the sea urchin market? Go out to your local seafood restaurant or your seafood monger and go, where's the sea urchin on the menu? You do see it around, so if you see it on a menu, give it a try. It, it, is, it is delicious. And encourage local seafood restaurants to, to stock it, to, to use it in the, in their dinners, in their meals. And using it in dishes is a good way to introduce people to, to sea urchin. Yeah, just a little bit at a time. Well, sometimes I say to people, you know, because it can be quite a strong flavour, particularly the long spine, is that you wouldn't go sit down and eat a whole jar of anchovies necessarily. Sea urchin's a bit like like that if you add it with the correct dish the correct meal it's just that you know helps with that flavor that really uh, rich umami flavor and it's and it's fantastic beautiful i know in the past when i've tried to get sea urchins out of their holes it's a bit tricky how do the fishermen who go out there to get them how do they harvest them so they harvest them by commercial diving so diving to scuba diving and they've got a hook or like a modified pair of tongs so they keep their hand away from the sea urchin and just hook them out of a crack or crevice and they've got this big bag that they that they put them in and you know they might get 50 or 100 in the bag and then send it up on a rope to the, the dive boat and the dive boat sends down another bag and then, then they fill the next bag. A typical day for a fisherman in Tasmania is, is 700 kilos of sea urchin, 1,500 to 2,000 sea urchins. Most of these divers that are going out and getting them, is it their full-time job or their part-time job? It does vary. Some do it full-time. 
but the majority of them do it part-time. One of the things we hope to do with this sea urchin industry and growing it is actually provide more full-time employment for the divers and the processors and then the factory. That sounds pretty good. And then all these small little towns up and down the coast, they've got more consistency of cash flow and keeps the little towns going. You know, the sea urchin divers all the way from, you know, Port Stephens, where I grew up, all southern New South Wales, eastern Victoria and Tasmania from the northeast down to Hobart in the south. So there's, there's sea urchin divers all across our coastline. You know, it's really good going to a boat ramp in sea urchin season and seeing half a dozen dive boats lined up full of sea urchins, knowing that there's not only an employment, but they're protecting the environment. Yes, yeah, that's right. And it's our job now to eat them. <laughs> to protect the environment. And how long do the sea urchins live for? Oh, they're actually quite long-lived. Um, estimates say they can live up to 40 or 50 years from our, our growth tagging and modelling. So to age the sea urchin, we'll tag it with a chemical called tetracycline, which glows under UV light. So we'll go tag it, release it back into the environment, come back in 12 months later. Because they don't move much, <laughs> we, can, we can find them again. And then we look at their, their jaw structure, okay. the sea urchin jaws, and that see how much they've grown in that 12 months so we can then work out how quick they grow oh fantastic never knew that and are the spines just thrown away when you process them historically yes they've just gone gone into dump but we've got a couple of research projects happening where we're trying to find uses for the sea urchin spines and waste and the one we're looking at at the moment is agriculture fertilizer we've actually run some trials using the, the sea urchin waste which includes the spines run some trials on tomatoes which grew fantastically some flowers but now i've got two semi-commercial trials with ones at a vineyard and ones at an apple orchard that make cider so we could could end up turning our sea urchin waste into wine and cider and, and, and drink that while we're uh, eating our sea urchin dinner oh fantastic so it's a sea urchin brew there is a company who have used sea urchins in in a beer operating out of victoria so in eastern victoria to try to find a use there's a umami flavored sea urchin beer people are getting showing some innovation and initiative and, and trying to you know use sea urchin in a whole variety of ways can you talk a little bit more about the invertebrates the sea urchins eat do they eat these too so they'll eat invertebrates which includes things like sponges sponges are an animal and they're stuck on the rock they can't get away from the sea urchins so they'll eat the sponge they'll eat the soft corals that you know the hard corals whatever's there the zoanthids whatever's on the rock and their mouths are in the way they'll just chomp it down other species of sea urchin don't necessarily do that but these ones are particularly bad they're not selective in, in what they eat so they just eat everything you know you look at the photos or you go diving and you're see very little marine life for large scales when they get overabundant. Once they're removed from an area, how long would it take for the marine ecosystem to come back with sponges and kelp and different things like that? So most of the kelp will grow back naturally within 18 months if you remove the, all the sea urchins from the area. So a lot of the species are quite resilient and they can return quite quickly. Other species take a bit longer, but the marine environment can be quite resilient. We've done this, remove sea urchins and you see the kelp come back. It's great when you go diving, and in my case you know the fisheries and the fishermen have been through and removed all the urchins and you see all these baby kelps coming up. Um, a nice like green fresh grass of seaweed. Fantastic. 
And on any of these sites, has there been any other species added to it to help control the urchins? In Tasmania, I think it's the only state where they do it. They they translocate rock lobsters around in our very cold deep waters south of Tasmania, there's an overabundance of rock lobsters. They don't grow real quick. They're really small and they're highly abundant. They catch them in normal fishing methods and move them up the east coast of Tasmania where there's urchin populations to help control the urchins and also to boost the rock lobster fishery more generally. But those rock lobsters also eat other species as well, such as the abalone. We've got to be careful where we translocate them through not to have any untoward consequences. Yes, so it's a bit of um still... Watch this space. I think there's about 400,000 lobsters to be set to be moved over the next few years off eastern Tasmania. And yeah, we just need to be selective of where we... But in saying that, the lobster fishery has been, you know, depleted through, you know, overfishing over many decades. It's a very low number off the east coast of of Tasmania at the moment. But this is all part of a a rock lobster rebuilding strategy. Are there any sea urchin free dive sites in Tasmania? Yeah, so we still get get lots of the the coastline and particularly south of, of Hobart where the urchins aren't in yet. But if you go dive a lot of the east coast, there's not too many you wouldn't find a sea urchin on at the moment. An individual sea urchin is not an issue. It's only when they form in their hundreds or, or hundreds of thousands where they become an issue. Could divers, just recreational divers, help by removing sea urchins in their local dive sites? I know some divers here in Tassie, they're doing, they're protecting their own dive sites. Um, so the more popular dive sites are largely, some of them are largely sea urchin free because of the you know, the recreational divers are keeping the control of them. Um, but in, in saying that, if, you know, there are numerous urchin species out there. So if you don't know your urchin species, oh, don't go don't go doing it because you might be killing the wrong one. That's correct. How many sea urchin species would there be on the East Coast? There's a lot of different sea urchins and, you know, they're echinoderm species, so they're related to the, the sea stars. There, there is a lot of them. Some of these are, you know, sand-dwelling species that you don't, that you'd never see that, you know, kind of live just below the, the sand. Some of them are up in the kelp canopy, but many of them are, you know, low, low abundance, low numbers. There's only really a, a couple of species that form these you know, very large numbers, high abundance. Is lobster fishing one of the reasons why sea urchins have taken hold? There's numerous reasons and, and lobster fishing is one of them, or at least, a, you know, it hasn't, removing predators from a from a reef, it, it lessens the, the resilience of that reef. So we've done some research here in Tassie and the, where we've had, had an area closed to lobster fishing that the sea urchins had struggled to get in there um, because the lobsters have been able to keep them in check. The rate of the size of the population, the rate of their breeding now, we are also seeing seem to start to get into some of our marine reserves here in Tasmania, which is not great. No, it isn't. What is the main focus on your research at the moment? My main focus is is, is around the commercial fishery for sea urchins and, and looking at how effective the, of that is of controlling the population, uh, particularly across large scales, you know, being hundreds of kilometres of coastline. We can go out on a small scale and cull sea urchins or control their numbers, but how do you control an an animal over vast kilometres of coastline, tens of thousands of hectares of reefs that we're trying to manage and trying to do it at scale is where the the challenge comes in and and trying to do it in a cost-effective manner. We can propose a lot of ideas out there, but they're just not affordable for you know, governments to implement. So that's where a commercial fishery really comes in because there's that economic return. We can hopefully keep urchin numbers down across these 
hundreds of kilometres of reefs at a uh, at an affordable price. So. Is um, the government coming to the party with funding? They have in Tassie. So the in, in Tassie, the government's um, put up some money, which has subsidised the fishery for the last uh, five or six years, and that's really helped get it off the ground and grow the industry. So we went from, you know, in the order of 40 tonnes a year to, to 500 tonnes, you know, a tenfold increase with government support. So that's the Tasmanian government. There's now a call on for the you know, called arms for the federal government to step up because this is an issue that, you know, affecting three states, Tasmania, Victoria, and New South Wales. There's been a push by the three states to the federal government say, hey, you know, you give all this money to the Great Great Barrier Reef, how about some to the Great Southern Reef? Yeah, that's exactly right. The Senate inquiry recently handed down its findings um, and that was calling for immediate investment into the sea urchin issue uh, and largely calling for the, you know, the commercialisation and assistance for that. There was a national business plan developed um, between the three states, New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania, and they've devised a strategy calling for $55 million of investment uh, to help tackle the the sea urchin issue and, you know, set up this long-term control measure for sea urchins and you know, fifty-five million might sound a lot to the to some people, but to put that in context, the at the last election there was one hundred sixty-two million, I think, given to the Crown of Thorn starfish on the Great Barrier Reef. So, you know, it's only a third of that, and the issue is, you know, arguably, you know, worse and impacting more livelihoods. Um, with that Senate inquiry, like who actually presented it? Um, so it was initiated by uh, the Tasmanian. Federal Green Senator Peter Wish Wilson, and then there was representatives of the three political parties on the panel, so Labor, Liberal, and the Greens, and then they called for submissions. And then I think there was like something like forty-four submissions from around the country on the issue. And then they interviewed, you know, scientists, industry, government, uh, recreational users, stakeholders. And I think if you love the ocean and in southeastern Australia, you'd be, you know, wanting this Senate inquiry to be supported and and funded uh it's you know it's trying to set us up for you know a long-term solution for urchin management and can we get in contact with our local senators to push them it's one thing having an inquiry and recommendations it's the next to probably a bigger challenge or equally large challenge of trying to get those uh recommendations you know acted upon and implemented you know we've heard you know a lot of positive uh, words come from some of the politicians, but you know, until it's actually committed and and on paper for them to be enacted, we're still, you know, holding our breath. So I can remember years ago, I was up in um, Port Stephens. There was a pearl farm going in there, and it was one of two royal commissions that actually said, "Yeah, this is good for the environment," and they knocked it back. And I went to the local council meeting there, and um, it was like five hundred people there, and ninety percent voted against it. And no one really knew where it was or what it was doing. And it was just a political decision at the end of the day that they wanted the, the votes, so they got rid of the pearl farm. So it, this could be the same thing, couldn't it? If we have enough voices out there saying, hey, we need this, we need this, we need this, uh, it could swing those marginal seats. As I said, it's a win-win situation. So if you're an ocean lover, love to go fishing and diving, you know, you want, you want your oceans protected. So this is one way we'll do that. If you're if you want to see increased in employment in regional communities in your area, this is another 
another avenue to achieve that. So for, for myself looking at it, I think it's a no-brainer, no but, you know, I'm not a politician with the purse strings. So. so the mob out there, just get to your email, find out your local senator, your local member, and just type up a polite letter and let's just push from the public because we are the power. It's the power of the people and Dr. John needs our help. Yeah, well, the Asians need our help. <laughs> yes, they do. But you're on the front line. We're just the, the troops behind you. How many people are working on this problem with you? I've got a few colleagues do it, um, some full-time, a lot of part-time ones. So there's you know, there's probably three or four key scientists who, who are focusing on on this, um, at least part-time. And then we've got our technical officers, officers our divers, uh, and then we are calling help from from other people, from our agricultural scientists for the soil uh, research, from our economists for economic research, to the social scientists. So the net of people involved in this is broad, but some from very little to some are very low. And what about the 3030 initiative for protecting the oceans? Yeah, so that's the 30% of marine parks by 2030. That's correct. More marine parks that are in, uh, you know, are generally considered a good thing. Um, it's like anything, how we manipulate the ocean has can have un, unintended consequences. For example, when the, the rock lobster modelling down here shows if you put 30% marine parks without reducing effort in the rock lobster fishery, you'd, you'd actually have less egg production in total because you just displace the effort to the other 70%. So more would get caught from that and the remaining 70% and the sum of its parts would be worse off. So Very interesting. So the other 70% of the ocean will be further overfished unless you restricted that fishery and collectively you'd be down. Anything we do and we try to manipulate manipulate areas, yeah, there is sometimes some consequences that we don't first consider. Is there any um, rock lobster areas in Tasmania where it's just like a marine park, they can't be taken out? Yeah, so there is there is marine parks in, in Tassie. Um, uh, not not big ones, though. They're kind of not, not in the coastal state scale. So, yeah, there are, there are quite small marine parks. Um, there is some quite impressive rock lobsters in there in some of these marine parks, though, and uh, you know, up to five kilos, uh, quite large crayfish in there, which, are, which is always lovely to see. Crikey, that'd be as big as your leg. Catch the odd rock lobster recreational, and I've seen some of those big ones. I go, oh, that'll that's a, be a bit intimidating trying to put that in a catch bags. What can ordinary people do to help the problem? And that's to eat them. Obviously, try to incentivize incentivize the commercial fishery to do. We're talking, you know, thousands of kilometers of coastline that's impacted. So, how do we manage at scale? I mean, that's where we need some of these bigger commercial actions at play. We've had localized success here in Tasmania of recreationals, you know, culling sea urchins, but on large scales, we need to, you know, really up the ante, and that's where the commercial industry comes into play. We've got to get that kicked off by people eating more. Yeah, you know, why waste a good product? You know, they're delicious. So, you know, wait, wait till after Christmas comes and February, March, April, get out there and, and, and pick a few off and, you know, reasonably healthy habitat and give them a taste. Are you optimistic for the future? Generally, yes. Yes. So I think we have, you know, we've done enough enough science and enough, enough initiative 
and enough keen people where we can, you know, really make this commercialization of the sea urchin industry a success. You know, we've proved it here in Tassie, removing 500 tonnes a year. And if Victoria and New South Wales do that, or we, they've got the op- opportunity to do even more because of the, the length of the coastlines are larger, there's more sea urchins on, on those reefs. They could actually have a large, even larger scale, you know, commercial fishery keeping these urchin numbers under control. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Dr. John. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. We're going to get out there and we're going to eat more sea urchins and we're going to help you as much as we can. You're one of those silent achievers that everybody needs to know about. This is a really win-win you know, story. So we can do win for the environment, win for jobs. Um, so that's it's a really good story worth telling. Beautiful. You've been listening to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show.